From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Podcasting seems like a space where uncertainty can live more fully and a kind of hesitance and a figuring out of things in real time that has been lost elsewhere. That's Ezra Klein. He's a New York Times columnist and host of the Ezra Klein Show podcast. He was previously co-founder of Vox.com, and before that, an editor and columnist at the Washington Post, where while still in his 20s, he founded the popular Wonk blog. Klein is known for his ability to distill academic research into clear and concise journalism. He's especially interested in the causes of political and social polarization in the U.S., which was the focus of his 2020 book, Why We're Polarized. We discuss the ever-evolving state of news journalism in the 21st century, why Klein believes Ron DeSantis' presidential prospects may be overhyped, and the qualities that make podcasting unique. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, Politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user at Devin Ian Stone, who asks the question, which part of the Constitution says we can do away with the Constitution? Now that's a great and clever question. And I presume it arises from something the former president, Donald Trump, posted on social media in the last week that's gotten a lot of attention, but I don't think as much attention as it deserves, because it's kind of a radical and outrageous statement, even judging by the standards of Donald Trump. This is what he posted, still griping and complaining falsely and in bad faith about the election of 2020. He wrote, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner, or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, and this is the key part, even those found in the Constitution. So Donald Trump, in writing, posts for millions of people to see his view that the rules in the Constitution should be terminated because in his subjective view, without any evidence presented to any court convincingly, the 2020 election was rigged. So to answer, Devin, your rhetorical question about which part of the Constitution says we can do away with the Constitution, no part of it does. The other interesting thing about the statement by Trump 
that some people have focused on is that it may be admissible in a potential trial of him because it goes to a state of mind in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Because to the extent he's admitting straightforwardly and openly that he believed that the Constitution should be ignored or terminated, to use his verb, that goes to his state of mind also, potentially, on January 6th. So it's a bad statement, it's an un-American statement, it's a treacherous statement, and it's a stupid statement. This next question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Ois Beard, who asks, are a criminal suspect's social media posts legally admissible in court? So that's, that's a good follow-on question to the first question. And I presume you also are maybe referring to Donald Trump's social media posts. There is a rule of evidence that admissions made by a defendant are admissible in court. They're not hearsay. They come in. So long as you can make the showing that the statement was made by the defendant in a criminal trial, it comes in. Whether it's a newspaper interview, whether it's a diary entry, whether it's a statement to authorities, or whether it's a social media post. So good question. And it is absolutely legally admissible against the person who made the statement. This question comes in an email from Phyllis, who writes, A question about Judge Cannon. I've been hearing an earful about this judge and the humiliating way in which he was overruled. How might recent events affect her career trajectory? What real effect does current damage to her reputation have in her work life? Thank you in advance for sharing your perspective. And of course, Phyllis is referring to the federal judge in Florida who ruled in favor of the Trump motion for a special master in connection with the handling of the documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago pursuant to a court-authorized search warrant. And as Joyce Vance and I talked about at some length on the Cafe Insider podcast, in the last week, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ruled fairly stridently that all the bases on which Judge Cannon thought there was jurisdiction to appoint a special master and do all sorts of other things was without merit. And it is, in fact, I don't know if it's humiliating, but it is, in fact, a strong opinion, pretty strident opinion by a panel of Republican appointees, including two appointed by Donald Trump and the chief judge, uh, Judge Pryor, who's not known for being a bleeding heart liberal in any way, shape or form. One part of the opinion by the 11th Circuit reversing Judge Cannon is kind of stinging. They write, we cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. Either approach would be a radical reordering of our case law, limiting the federal court's involvement in criminal investigations. So here's a panel of judges unanimously in the 11th Circuit basically saying that the district court judge was supportive of a radical reordering of our case law. So that's not great. But there have been many occasions, uh, I've had experience in a number of them, where district court judges are overruled in fairly obnoxious manner by the appeals court. Sometimes the appeals court is absolutely correct. Sometimes the appeals court itself gets it wrong. And that's corrected by the Supreme Court sometimes, but not always. What effect does it have on our career trajectory? Well, federal judges in our country, for good reason, and to insulate them from political wins and from this kind of thing, have life tenure. So she's not going anywhere. Uh, She's not getting impeached. She's not getting removed from office. She's not getting fined. She's not going to the penalty box. And hopefully this experience is a learning experience for this judge who's relatively new and relatively young. And she'll do a better job of adhering to precedent in the future. You know, life tenure is a long time. And sometimes judges make bad decisions in certain cases and better decisions in other cases. Sometimes it depends on their expertise. 
Sometimes it depends on how they were thinking about a particular question in that moment. A judge who has a bad reputation and gets overruled a lot by the circuit court probably is not top of mind for a future Republican president to put on the Court of Appeals, but you never know. So this question comes actually not from Twitter, not from an email, not from a voicemail, but a short while ago today from my eye doctor, (laughs) a regular eye doctor appointment. And the doctor told me that he had just seen a report. This is Tuesday afternoon. He had just seen a report that the January 6th committee had made the decision to make criminal referrals to DOJ. And he wanted to know, well, is this a big deal or is it not a big deal? It's the first question I think I've answered from one of my medical professionals. So we went back and looked at what the report was. And it appears that on Tuesday, late morning, early afternoon, chairman of the 1-6 committee, Benny Thompson, told reporters that the committee has decided to make at least one criminal referral. He did not elaborate on who the referral is for or how many more would be coming, but we can assume it's likely to be a referral related to the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Now, you'll remember that this debate and controversy first started to arise some months ago when it was not exactly clear what the Department of Justice's game plan was, how much investigation they had done, how serious they were being about pursuing Trump and others with respect to the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Well, since that time, the department has gotten into gear. Since that time, we know the prosecutors have been added to the team. Since that time also, and more significantly, there has been the appointment of a special counsel, Jack Smith, whose remit includes not only the handling of the documents at Mar-a-Lago, but very specifically and concretely, all the business relating to January 6th. So you have a department that has an open investigation, an open grand jury investigation, and a special counsel who's appointed to pursue all of this. In that context, I'm not sure what the value and meaning of a referral from the January 6th committee is. Remember, there's no legal effect or triggering effect of a referral from Congress in this context. The Department of Justice is free to ignore a referral, free to find a referral superfluous, or can respond to a referral in some way. Here, every sign is that they're already doing what the referral would seem intended to get the Department of Justice to do. So is it significant for the committee? Um, People could argue that it looks political and it's unnecessary and redundant. I suppose it sends a signal that at least members of the committee who looked at a lot of evidence and sifted through a lot of documents and interviewed a lot of witnesses, in their estimation, there's a belief or a feeling that there's probable cause that one or more crimes were committed. But I think at this point, given the stage we're at, it's largely symbolic. We'll be right back with my conversation with Ezra Klein. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, 
and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Best-selling author, New York Times columnist, podcaster, cutting-edge journalist. Just a few of the words that describe my guest this week, Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about something that people say about you and your journalism, which is obviously excellent and worthy. People talk about how you have taken the explainer to a high art, that you are the paragon of explanatory journalism. First of all, what is explanatory journalism? Do you agree with that assessment? And shouldn't all journalism be largely explanatory? Do I agree with the assessment that I'm great and have taken yeah, journalism to a high Be immodest, be immodest. <laughs> Do that one first. Be- begin with the softballs here, Preet. <laughs> Without getting into what other people say about me, um, I do think of myself as an explanatory journalist. And the way I've tended to define that is that it is a journalism focused on context. There is journalism focused on what is the piece of information that or the, the whole block of information that we don't know that we need to. And that is, I think, in many ways, the highest form of journalism. And I want to admit it is not mainly what I do. I've done it sometimes, but, you know, these are the people who, um, you know, f- go find that there was a massacre or the people who go unearth something on a government document that wasn't released showing that there was internal corruption, right? So there's things where we did not know something and now we, we know it. What that journalism can miss or what it can need as a complement is journalism that takes that unit of information and puts the context around it necessary to understand it. Um, Very little can be understood on its own. And explanatory journalism, which I did not invent, but have been a practitioner of, and and Vox um, is an organization that I I helped build to do that work. Um, Explanatory journalism is journalism and journalists focused on doing that, focused on, on figuring out how to, to put the context around information such that information fits into a framework in people's mind such that they have what is needed to understand it. And yeah, I, I, I try hard to do it well, and I'm, I'm happy when I succeed and frustrated when I don't. But, but what I'm confused about is what you've described doesn't seem to, to me to be something that should be rare or special or specialized. It seems that all information, particularly when you're talking about long form, where there's space to provide context, why aren't all journalists or most journalists focused on and obsessed with context and explanation also? Well, one thing I think is that it's worth remembering that we're in a very, very, very new period in journalism where we've been freed from what was traditionally our fundamental constraint, which is space, right? There was only so many pages in the newspaper. There were only so many pages in the magazine, only so many minutes on your broadcast, And almost all of journalism, as we understand it, emerged in this period when space was the absolute constraint. Sometimes some of it actually, you know, people talk about this in reverse pyramid structure, which is an important structure for some kinds of news articles, was uh, at least partially created to deal with the fact that you would sometimes lose whole pieces of a telegram. (laughs) 
because of the way telegrams work. So if it cut off, um, the story needed to be structured in a way that it could cut off at some point and it would still be publishable. So we, we evolved, I mean, as everything does within the context of the technology that we used. The world in which we have as much space as we want, where we can publish the entirety of Moby Dick in the morning and the entirety of Charles Dickens in the evening is new. And we are building out, I think still, many more story formats. Um, we are teaching journalists and learning as journalists how, how to use that. And explanatory journalism, one thing about it is that it's simply long. Um, to do that kind of work well, you actually need quite a lot of space. I joke with my editor, um, Aaron, at the New York Times that I don't joke. It is a sardonic, sad <laughs> recollection that I used to know how to write articles that were under 1,800 words. I used to know how to do like more traditional opinion columns. But the reason very few of my pieces come out at anything less than 1,800 words or 2,000 words now is because I'm I, what they are fundamentally is explanatory, and explanatory takes a lot of room. So I'm of a pretty early generation of journalists who grew up primarily, almost entirely, in digital journalism and never had to think about the space constraint. So that has allowed kinds of experimentation um, that are a bit different. I also just think specialization is good. When you say, why are not all journalists focused on exactly what I'm focused on, I wouldn't want them to be. I think more could be, and Vox was designed to do that. And I think there's a lot more good explanatory work being done all over. But you want people doing amazing narrative long form, and you want people doing um, important breaking news and investigative. And what we should have is a lot more specialization. Um, one of the shames of the internet, uh, digital journalism at this moment, is I think a, a move towards specialization kind of ran aground due to business model problems and other things. And we're sort of, again, in a period of homogenization. But what the internet should allow is lots of different institutions built to do lots of very different things very well. Yeah, it, just, it, it always gets me when something happens in the world, some news event, it can be something having to do with the Middle East, it can be the protests in Iran, it can be the election in Brazil. And for people who are non-specialists, myself included, you know, I know some stuff, but there's a lot of stuff I don't know. And we try to do some explanatory work quite a bit on this podcast and on the other podcasts that you'll pick up, you know, a traditional mainstream periodical. And sometimes they'll have sort of a sidebar explainer to let you know who the parties are and what the stakes are and what the history is. And as you say, what the context is. But by and large, I've found that a lot of mainstream media, when some new event happens somewhere, they assume a lot of knowledge. And maybe there'll be a parenthetical or two in the main news article. But if you haven't been following the politics of Israel, you haven't been following the politics of Brazil, you haven't been following the regime in Iran, it becomes very difficult to leap in when an event happens. Is that fair or not? I think that's, I certainly think that's fair as a description of the experience for, for anybody reading the news. I mean, let me, I'll say one other reason I think it is hard for, for this kind of work to be done. And it's not an accident that I've always been, a, I've always at least worked more on the opinion side, or at least been in places where I could I could deploy opinion more often, that a lot of the structure of journalism and the internal ethos of it, particularly on the news side, is that you're not supposed to be using your opinion, right? You're, you're supposed to be reporting the news. And one thing about explanatory work is it, and I believe this to be fair almost about everything in journalism, including hard news, but people disagree with me, but, but I don't think it's arguable in the explanatory space, is that when you explain something, you actually are giving an opinion. Now, it isn't an opinion in the sense of the guy at the end of the bar being like, I, I, I got an opinion for you. But it is an opinion <laughs> in the sense that you are using your judgment, your knowledge of the situation, the frameworks that make sense to you to say, 
this is the information. This is the explanatory model or structure that I think fits here. And one thing that was always a I don't want to say a mistake, but but something I struggled with when I was editor of Vox and when I was kind of explaining the Vox model to people is that explainer sounds singular, right? Like, here's our explainer. And it's not, and it's not really meant to be. There are many possible explanations for something, and, and many of them are true all at the same time. Like, if I say, you know, what is the explanation for Donald Trump? Like, some one person will tell you a story about kind of changing racial dynamics in America, and another person will tell you a story about social media and the sort of dynamics of attention and reality TV, and another person will tell you a story about the ways that the primary systems changed and you had to used to win party conventions. And, like, I can keep going down, and they're all true. Or at least they all have a piece of the truth. But in traditional journalism, where you are taught to be very skeptical of making those judgments, and you're supposed to be focused on, you know, the things that uh, can can be, you know, the what, where, when, and whys, um, and frankly, not as much on the hows, I think that cuts against a lot of people's intuitions, um, or in some cases, cuts against what their editors are, are, are comfortable publishing. Right. So that, that's also been a challenge. It, seem, it seems to me that it depends on what we mean by opinion. So for example, I was going to ask you about this later in the interview, but I might as well ask you about it now. When a, a regular journalist, if you want to call him a regular journalist, covers the re-election of Ron DeSantis in Florida, and an explanatory journalist, if you want to use that term, covers the same thing, one way of talking about being opinionated or having an opinion versus not having an opinion is to either indulge an interest in discussing whether or not Ron DeSantis is good for Florida or good for the country or is a good person or is a good politician in the moral sense or not. And obviously mainstream journalists are going to stay away from that. Explanatory journalists, maybe, maybe not. But some opinion has to creep in uh, into all the articles to the extent you're addressing the question of what the meaning of his reelection is for his 2024 prospects. That's not opinion in terms of good or bad or normative, but it's an opinion about the consequences for 2024, given the, the, the degree to which he came in first place in Florida. And, and you have a contrary view of that that I want to get to in a moment. But, but does that make sense? Isn't it true that all kinds of journalism, mainstream or otherwise, that considers itself to be non-opinion, has to take advantage of some opinions in some ways, as with the example with Ron DeSantis? I think so. I think the the more useful terms here are objectivity and subjectivity. So there's this old line about objective journalism, right? You're supposed to be an objective journalist. And I've always just believed like, the, the metaphysical and ontological foundations of that are trash. The most fundamental space that subjectivity operates in journalism happens before the moment of whether or not you're writing a news piece, an opinion piece, a news analysis piece, a narrative piece, whatever. It's a decision of which piece to write. And even the decision to, say, constantly cover Ron DeSantis, the decision to treat Ron DeSantis's victory in Florida as much more important than Mike DeWine's larger victory in Ohio or um, Governor Jared Polis's quite significant victory in Colorado is a form of subjectivity, a form of journalists acting upon what the news is in a way that will change what becomes the news tomorrow and, and what the country is like in, in potentially four years or three years or two years, that that is such an important choice. And we so refuse to treat it as a choice and have any kind of visible framework for how we're making these decisions that I think that the, the, the whole question um, has just gotten away from us. We are very, very focused, I think, on the 
tone in which an article is written. I used to say, and this is true in my view, that I could write the same article for the opinion section, for the news analysis, and for news. You know, I could write an article, let's say it's a piece about whether we should raise the social security retirement age. And I have a, I have a strong view and have for a long time that we should not. That is not a good thing to do. But I could write um, concerns raised about raising social security retirement age and quote a bunch of people and the order in which I quote them and so on will leave you with the strong impression, which I, again, that is my view, that you shouldn't do that. Then I could write a news analysis piece that's sort of like Democrats wary of I of raising social security age and, you know, right, in a kind right. of cool headed way, walk through why Democrats have become more wary of that than they were 15 years ago. And then opinion, don't raise the retirement age by S. Recline, in which I just sort of like slash my way through the argument. They're the same piece. Yeah. So what's the upshot of that observation that that we 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 make too much of a semantic distinction between opinion and news writing? I think the upshot of the observation is that it complicates some of these um, lines we draw. The other side of this is that, look, these lines are not perfect. But, and I believe this more than I did, say, 10 years ago, certain important things do get thrown out when it all becomes a festival of opinion. So I think one way of, of hearing some of what I'm saying is that I just think like everything is equal. And I don't. Um, I have an old line uh, that I used to have at the Washington Post that the problem with the divide we've created is that it's too hard for the news side to tell the truth, and it's too easy for the opinion side to lie. That we would make it too hard for somebody who is doing a great job reporting the news to tell you, I've done all this work, and here is what I have actually come to, right? Here's a conclusion of all this work I've done on your behalf. And we made it too easy for the opinion side, for anybody on the opinion side, to do no work, to just fire off a take about something grounded in nothing. It's like, right. well, that's my opinion. Can't or, question or, somebody's or, opinion. Or just asking so, questions. So opinion, We're just asking questions. So credibility needs to be earned is sort of what I'm getting at here. And I think the much more fundamental question is not whether something is news or opinion, but whether the work has been done, whether the reporting has been done. Since I mentioned Ron DeSantis, and we'll come back to some of this other stuff in a moment, could you opine further on why you think and I think this is what you think, that people are are overreacting to his victory. I think you said in a recent interview, quote, I think the narrative is so interested in attuned to Ron DeSantis that we are taking a victory that is quite well within established boundaries of how incumbent governors run in a state that leans in their direction, in a year that leans in their direction, as some kind of cataclysmic political performance when it just looks like a strong win, end quote. Right. So I have had... Let me think about the way to phrase this. The, the media runs on narratives. Those narratives, to everything I've been saying up until here, are often not quite articulated. But at some point over the past year, year and a half, um, and not based on nothing, it's been based on Ron DeSantis having very strong poll numbers in, in 2024, Republican polling, in his, there being a lot of energy around his candidacy, strong fundraising, et cetera. There's become a, a view that Ron DeSantis is an important figure in Republican Party politics, that he is either the, the successor to Donald Trump or now it has become that he is the challenger to Donald Trump. Right. So things about Ron DeSantis are getting a very high level of interest. And so one thing that happened on election night is Florida reports early. So the first kind of evidence we had of anything was Ron DeSantis um, you know, having a strong win, although I, I would note not running ahead, really, by very much of Marco Rubio, um, which it does. I'll, I'll come back to why I think that's important in a second. 
Then as the night goes on, Republicans don't perform that well, but they did perform very well in, you know, in, in Florida. So it's like, it's Ron DeSantis's night that Trump people have done. That's all a narrative. You, you just kind of back up into the numbers. It's like, is anything that unusual in what happened in Florida? Part of the way you might answer that depends on what you think has happened to Florida compositionally. And I think it's pretty clear Florida's become a very red state, not a very red state in, you know, relation to say Wyoming, but um, but but a but a reliably red state. If people moved in, people moved out, et cetera. But was DeSantis's victory bigger than that of a bunch of other Republicans? I mean, it's bigger than some, but but as I mentioned, Mike DeWine over in Ohio uh, won by an even larger margin than DeSantis did. Now, right. Mike DeWine isn't considered a top prospect for 2024, but maybe if he was getting wall-to-wall coverage all the time, maybe he would be. Um, or Gretchen but Whitmer. But maybe he's not turned, getting wall-to-wall coverage. I'm just wondering what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Is, is part of the reason for the uh, disproportionate coverage that Ron DeSantis – rhetorically and otherwise is putting him out there, putting himself out there as a challenger to Trump. And, the, you know, the dominant political figure for good or, or, or ill in the country is Trump. So the narratives develop in relation. Kevin McCarthy is covered often as a foil to Trump. Liz Cheney the same, Joe Biden the same. And if you're not sort of in that, you know, landscape of being oppositional to or supportive of Trump, like DeWine is, you don't get a lot of attention. I think that's right. I just think that's a choice we've made. Yeah. That we don't want to say is a choice that we've made. Who's we? The media. But the media, not in a sense of a organism that makes decisions, but a kind of emergent complex system where people are reading signals around each other and having a kind of sense of the the gestalt and and moving in a more herd-like direction than you would think. I mean, I, I can say as a member of the media, um, a, high, a high media priest maybe, that if we actually did get in a room and plan things out, then I think our coverage would be um, more uh, dis- <laughs> distinguished from each other <laughs> that you wouldn't have. Because you'd be conscious about it. Because, because you'd be conscious question. about it. But instead, everybody's in this sort of weird follower-leader dynamic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about that. So you have mentioned, and it is no doubt true, that we're living in a time where space is no constraint and we have a tremendous proliferation of outlets. Lots and lots of writers, both opinion and news, does the proliferation of news outlets make it easier for narratives to change and diverge or harder? Harder. That's counterintuitive, right? I wouldn't have expected this. It's very counterintuitive. Um, I, I think that the media is more homogenous with more competition when you would think it would become more differentiated with more competition. And I, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but I actually think one of the biggest, which is something I, I talk about at some length in my book, Why We're Polarized, where the media chapter of that book has not gotten as much attention, but I think it's one of the best chapters. But as somebody who's been a media executive now, has has been at you know a bunch of different newspapers and has run an organization and started one, one thing it's important to understand is that everybody running a media organization actually has access to the same analytics to some degree. You have a sense of what's popping on social media. There are different tools people use for that at different times, but the audience teams always have those tools. You know what is moving on on your site, right? You know what is doing well on Chartbeat or Parsley or whatever your analytics platform is. Um, you have a sense on on just in, intuitively like what the other people are doing, right? You see what's leading elsewhere and what's on the top lists and what's getting passed around everywhere so it's going viral. And so it creates a lot of pressure to do the things that see, everybody seems to 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 be doing. And partially this gets to something I was talking about earlier. Because we don't have a strong articulated framework at most news organizations for what it is that we are covering, what it is that we think is important, um, what it is that we will choose to, to decide as news, 
Well, then the absolute easiest, least biased in a way, way of making that choice is, well, it's news because everybody is already covering it as news. And that creates a sort of momentum dynamic for ongoing stories, right? So anything with DeSantis is news because DeSantis is already considered news, right? It's tautological in a way. Whereas what the other ones are doing, you know, Nikki Haley is probably going to run in 2024 too. Does anybody really care what she's doing? It's not been decided as important news. Um, And so there's something that happens where these storylines take hold and then everybody is operating with them as a framework because to to go the other way, it's not impossible and people do it all the time, but there is so much pressure to be on the news as the term goes uh, that just by nature, if once you've covered all the things that were on the news, you only have so much staff resources and mental energy yeah. and so on to do the things that you think are news and that other people have not decided um, are news. It's so interesting that you, you use the verb decided and you also can see that no one's actually making a decision. Well, individual editors and writers yeah. are making decisions. But that results in a collective decision mm-hmm. that has no variety to it. Again, I don't want to say none. Um, you know, if you read The Atlantic and you read Time, they're covering different but things. Less than you would imagine. But yeah, less than you would imagine. I want to turn to an article that you wrote just after the midterms that I found super interesting in The New York Times. Uh, and it's entitled, Three Theories That Explain This Strange Moment. And you talk about three concepts that you believe explain not just one election, but multiple elections. And you say, I think, uh, very wisely that those are more interesting things to look at, things that can explain patterns and trends in politics. And you, you're you a very deep thinker about politics. And there are three words that you talk about. And I want to go through them and, and have you explain what they mean and how they apply to the, you know, uh, basic po- political system that we're in with all these narratives that you say are intertwined and roiling about. Uh, one is calcification. Another is parody, and the third is cultural backlash. What is calcification? So calcification, and I should say this is true for both calcification and parody, it comes from a new book by John Sides, Lynn Vavrek, and Chris Dasanovich called The Bitter End, I believe. Um, they were on my podcast. It's a great conversation uh, a couple months back. But just right before the 2022 election, they released, they're three political scientists, and they released a book that is built on just a tremendous amount of data collection and analysis of the 2020 election. And they end up validating in the 2020 election something we've been seeing for a while now. It's actually, again, something sort of I tracked in, in my first book, um, which is first calcification. People are not changing their minds election to election basically at all. That is not to say literally nobody does, but the number of people shifting their voting preference is extremely small given how dramatic the events have been. I mean, the to say what you will about the Trump presidency, it was dramatic. Um, to say, and he was dramatic, there was the, the COVID and the COVID response, right? I mean, by the time of the election, hundreds of thousands of people had died in this country. You know, uh, now it's well over a million. We had had, you know, pretty big and significant, like, economic changes, big yeah. policy had passed, right? You can go kind of go through it. Something should have changed somebody's mind, and it really didn't. Um, The 2020 election looks almost exactly like the 2016 election. Yeah, you write in the article. It's a a very short, pithy sentence. So much happened, and so few minds changed. And that was kind of an arresting statement, because I hadn't thought of it that way. So that's calcification. And the point of calcification is that as the parties have become much more different over time, um, in 1950, roughly— when you ask voters, do they see a big difference between the two parties? About 50% said yes. Only 50%. One out of, one out of two said, yeah, big difference between Republicans and Democrats. 
Um, you remember, you know, 2000, Bush Gore, right? Ralph Nader runs against him as Tweedledee and Tweedledum, right? No real difference between the parties. Um, I think that that judgment did not look so great in, in, in the long Sube history. But by modernity, by 2020, 90% of people see a very big difference between the parties. And when the parties become very different, when they represent very different ideas, very different coalitions, very different groups, switching between them becomes much rarer because you're not jumping over a crack, you're jumping over a chasm. So that's calcification. People stop making that jump. Pause on that for a second. Do you accept that the parties are so much more different than they were in 1950? Mm -hmm. Or is it a perception that arises from some other factors? No, they're dramatically different. I mean, this is a very core story of, of, of my book, Why We're Polarized. But what, one thing particularly that they are is polarized. And, and what I mean by that is that the disagreements that used to exist within parties are now sorted between parties. So I'll use just as an example, um, abortion. So Joe Biden is sort of a useful tracker here because he's just been in politics for so long. Joe Biden, as a young um, Catholic, moderate Catholic Democrat, he opposes the Roe v. Wade decision. He is on the margin a pro-life politician. He's uncomfortable with it, right? Talks a lot about his ambivalence here. But but he's a, you know, he he's somebody who's a Catholic Democrat, you know, believing Catholic, you know, opposes opposes Roe v. Wade um, and is uncomfortable and skeptical. At this point, of course, Biden is a full-throated, forthrightly pro-choice politician who will absolutely like opposes the overturning of Roe v. Wade through Dobbs and will absolutely, if given any Supreme Court nominees, put people on the court who will um, uh, either restore Roe or go further than that. Uh, obviously, you could tell a similar story in the Republican Party. You know, Nelson Rockefeller had passed actually a more a liberalization of abortion laws. He becomes a vice presidential candidate at some point. You know, we can kind of go on now, of course, to what the Republican Party is. Immigration looks a lot like this. Um, the parties are very mixed on immigration. Now, Democrats are very clearly the party of a more liberalized immigration system. Republicans are party of a more restrictionist one. So the parties, it's not just that they've become uh, different. It's that what they stand for has become distinctive. They were just much more muddled internally in the mid 1950s. Um, you know, I, I, this has become like a kind of generic story that uh, polarization nerds like me tell. But but in that era, you have the American Political Science Association come out with this paper um, or, or this big recommendation set. It's called Towards a Responsible Two-Party System. And the idea is that a big problem in American politics is that the parties are not polarized enough. And so when people make a choice between them, they're not being able to make a clear enough choice or they're making a choice in one state, but because the parties in another state are so different, nationally that choice isn't being honored. So it's like there's an actual view in mid-20th century America that our problem is not enough polarization, not distinctive enough parties. By now, that is clearly not our problem. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the parties are very different. So on calcification, you say, it was a great piece that I urge people to read. Because politics is so calcified, virtually nothing matters. But because elections are so close, virtually everything matters. So explain what parity is. Yeah, so this is, this is really fascinating. So for most of American politics, we've had what get called the sun and moon parties. Um, after the Civil War, the Republican Party is dominant for a long time. After the Great Depression and the New Deal, the Democratic Party is dominant for many decades. The period we're in now is the closest American politics has been between the parties ever. So the fact that we keep seeing the House change hands, I mean, there were 40 years there where the House didn't change hands back in the day um, when, when Democrats just held it and held it and held it until in 1994, Republicans finally took it back. Um, the, the fact that we really don't have landslide 
presidential elections. I mean, you look at the numbers by which like Richard Nixon won or um, Lyndon Johnson won or Ronald Reagan won. You just don't see things yeah, like no that. No more 49 states. And, and you can't imagine a 49 state victory for anybody in the foreseeable future, right? No, completely ridiculous. Um, <laughs> right. So we're now at this place where not just because of how close things are in the popular vote, where they're close but not so close, but because of the way the Electoral College has kind of shook out, um, where, you know, in the last couple of elections, shifting functionally, like, between, depending on how you want to count, like, 30 and 80,000 votes would have swung either election in another direction. Um, you know, in 2016, it was so unbelievably close in the key states that, as I say, I, I think in my book, that, like, anything could have tipped it and probably everything did, right? Like looking for the culprit of why 2016 went the way it did when you're only explaining a couple tens of thousands of votes is like ridiculous. Everything Right, all the things matter. And so parody is this kind of interesting counterforce to calcification because on the one hand, calcification means almost nobody is changing their mind. But on the other hand, parody means that almost nobody changing their mind can repeatedly flip American politics in one direction or another. So you have a very small pool of persuadable voters, and they're very weird voters, right? What what is changing their minds is very unclear. They're often not very interested in American politics, right? That's why they don't already they've not already chosen a side. They're they're, they're not they're not highly attached to the system. But the parties are very 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 different, and small shifts put one or the other in charge, which sends American politics like rocketing down a completely different path. The the counterfactual of 2016. Where, you know, let's let's just pick one factor and say Comey does not come out with the laptop thing. Yeah. And that's enough. And I think the evidence is pretty good that that would have been enough to hand Hillary Clinton the election because you know, she wins a popular vote, you know, fairly comfortably. And she only needed a couple, you know, tens of thousands of key states. So that's a world now where it's clear Hillary Clinton was beatable. Donald Trump has lost. Um, his loss will be recorded more as a popular vote loss than the Electoral College loss because that's typically how we think of it. Um, his faction of the Republican Party is discredited for having lost a winnable election. Um, very likely, Clinton is able to replace uh, the seat that Scalia has vacated. So now Democrats have the Supreme Court in a much more fundamental way. Um, and you have this wholly different move in American politics, I suspect, where there's just fury at the Trumpist faction of the Republican Party that blew this winnable election, gave the presidency to Hillary Clinton, and gave the Supreme Court to the Democrats. And like American politics ends up on a whole different path. Maybe the Republican Party moderates. Maybe it does something else. Who knows? Uh, but you don't have probably the, the, the branch of history we're on. And the fact that there's only a couple tens of thousands of votes that made that difference is kind of maddening. Um, it's just, it's like it, too much is turning on too little. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Ezra Klein after this. Is there something in our history or in the natural arc of democracies that would suggest that over time you get to this condition where the parties are very different and the tribes are set and people change their minds less? Let me say this in two ways. So let me start with parity, because one interesting thing is there's no particular reason we should have parity. Political scientists don't have a good explanation for it. We haven't had it at a bunch of other times. Other systems often don't have it. So the kind of competitive, like, knife's edge balance we're in is a little bit weird, and we're not really sure why this is happening. And it doesn't look like what's happening is both parties are choosing optimal strategies. I think if you just sort of look at how the parties act, 
particularly though not only the Republican Party, you can't possibly look at that and say both parties are ruthlessly vote-maximizing um, organizations. So something very strange is happening there, and how much of it is chance and how much of it is structure, I'm really not sure. But then you're asking this, this other question, which is, is calcification sort of the like the end point, right? Is that is that the, the democracy version of late capitalism? I don't know. I mean, I, it is the case that the muddled parties of the of twentieth of mid twentieth century America are aberrational. Um, most other countries um, in multi party or two party systems have quite dif- differentiated parties, and the reason we didn't had to do with functionally the the um, legacy of the Civil War. Uh, the Democratic Party had this very conservative Dixiecrat bloc, which didn't agree with kind of national Democrats on a lot of different things, but uh, they. The South was not going to be Republican. The Republican Party had invaded the South. Right. Um, and you had a lot of Republicans, liberal Northeastern Republicans who are Republican, having to do with the, the sort of more liberal legacy of Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party, but were increasingly out of step uh, with the, the conservative party that was emergent in that period and that has now come to, come to be dominant. So we had this sort of weird thing where you had a four-party system posing as a two-party system. And historical legacies were uh, acting really as a blocking mechanism. And that ended as sort of the the Civil Rights Act passed. The Democratic Party became both a party of economic redistribution and racial equality. The Republican Party became um, the party of not exactly those things. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so you have differentiation. Calcification is a little harder. I, I don't know enough about other systems to know if they are as calcified as ours is. Our run-up in polarization has been really quite um, intense and extreme, and we have distinctive dynamics around racial polarization and racial equality and to some degree around religion that I think is making some of the kind of fixed-in-placeness dynamics quite a bit worse here than they are in other places. But but I'd, I'd want to um, do a little bit more comparative looking before I answer that too confidently. So we talked about calcification. We talked about parity. Talk about the third theory, cultural backlash. So cultural backlash comes from Pippa Norris and the late Ron Englehart. Um, and cultural backlash, uh, I think, is important. But unlike calcification and, and, and parody, it is importantly an international theory. It is something that is explaining many, many political systems at once right now and is being validated by, by cross-national data. And so the, the quick version of this story is that Englehart, uh, you know, sometimes with Norris and, and other co-authors, is known for recognizing that in roughly the 70s, in a lot of different countries that are becoming richer, you begin to see what gets called the post-materialist shift. And people's politics and their opinions become less responsive to their direct economic condition and their views on economics and more responsive to a kind of complex basket of, of issues that revolve around individual freedom, autonomy, personal expression, that kind of thing. So the, you know, in America, this gets talked about around things like the Port Huron statement, right? The new left, you know, this kind of free to be me movement. But but this is sort of the the move towards that at this point you kind of I think would understand is, you know, sexual identity and fluidity there being a a, a pretty central, you know, demand for many. Um, much more voice in in a political system becoming very important, environmental issues coming to be much more dominant, what kind of relationship man should have with nature becoming very important. So that's material that's post-materialism. One thing that uh, Pippa Norris now says that, that sort of was not well appreciated by the founders of that theory. What, and I think she's right, is what this material, this post-material shift, this very rapid shift in cultural values was going to feel like to those who didn't share it. P- 
people who were more traditionalist, people who were um, connected to to more orthodox versions of religions, people who are older. Um, I have a lot of people, a lot of older people in my life who one of their, I think, most central political feelings is disorientation, right? The sense that there was a country they understood and knew and they knew their place in. And now things have changed and they don't understand it. They don't know it. And that that fundamental unsettledness is absolutely bedrock to their politics. Like they like the more than any policy, they want things to be comprehensible to them. Um, and politicians who seem to share that feeling are very attractive to them and and those who seem too bought in to, to, to change or not. And so cultural backlash is basically what I would call like a post-materialist right emerging, right? A, a, a right wing that its fundamental argument is that this, this shift has gone too far. Our culture is changing too much. We don't recognize this place anymore. We're losing values and institutions and um, dynamics that made our countries great. And, and so there, there are politicians who know how to channel that. And sort of in country after country after country after country, they've led to the rise of what of what Norris and and, and, and Englehart called populist authoritarians, um, of which Trump is one. But you can look at people like Bolsonaro or Le Pen and so on, um, Orban in, in, in Hungary. And they both kind of speak the language of the people, but with a very sort of authoritarian flavor. And they are all becoming successful based on fairly similar appeals. Trump is in right. many ways less unique than we like to think of him as. All at the same time, in countries that are experiencing, say, different rates of GDP growth and per capita income and so on. And the argument is that this reflects a kind of maturation of post-materialism into the ground on which politics is fought. And cultural backlash is, in many ways, the predictable backlash to this long march of the post-materialists now coming to flower in different political systems simultaneously. Yep. So I'm confused about that because I understand the point that certain countries, societies, economies mature, and generally speaking, per capita income is higher and there's a savings rate, et cetera. But within every, within any particular society or democracy, there are pockets of folks who haven't sort of risen up and have a lot of economic insecurity, uh, not to mention food insecurity and various other things. How is it the case that those groups get sucked along on this cultural backlash train when they themselves may, may not be getting the benefits of the richness of the country in which they live? I always think this is a, a, a tricky spot, and I'll say a couple things on it. So one is that and this differs country to country. Um, it's important to note, for instance, in a place like Brazil, which is a lot poorer, if you look at the voting um, composition of the election, it looks very different than here. Though Bolsonaro looks a lot like Trump, Lula wins more of the kind of people that we would think of as Trump winning, sort of more rural, more poor than Bolsonaro does. Like Bolsonaro wins places like Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. He's more urban. So the dynamics of these figures in different countries actually change, and that might have to do with levels of material wealth in them. But But to focus here... So one issue might be that even though there are a lot of people who have not been uh, buoyed along by American prosperity in the way they should have been or the way we would hope they'd be, there is still enough in general affluence and material comfort here that people have the space to consider these other issues, right? Um, another is that I, I just – this has always been true. It's very true now. The left just has too, too narrow a definition of what self-interest should be. This thing where liberals ask, why are people voting against their self-interest or their material self-interest? Well, because non-material expression and values and identities and beliefs are very, very important to people. Religion is very, very important to people. Um, the way a, a, a country should be is very, very important to people. And of course, folks are good – 
rationalizers. And so when they agree with people in terms of their morals, in terms of their orientation, um, they also uh, will tend to sort of tell themselves a story in which their policies are, are better for them. Um, then a third thing, which I which I also think is important, is that people look at politicians. I mean, most people are not sitting around as policy analysts. People look at politicians and they ask questions that are are quite visceral of them. Is this person like me? Um, a related question, which I always think is very important, is does this person seem to like me, right? Um, one mistake I think we always make is asking about whether or not voters like a politician. I think voters are much more concerned with whether or not they think a politician likes them, whether or not a politician looks at them and sees worth and wants to raise them up um, in, in society. And so even situations where, say, um, a politician like, let's call it, uh, say, a Hillary Clinton or a Barack Obama has policies that would be so very good for, um, let's say, you know, rural, uh, low-income whites. The sense that those politicians, the sense maybe some of those voters have, those politicians would not actually like them if they met them, is really important and is uh, is upstream of any kind of policy concerns or analysis. So I, I think self-interest, I think it is a very, very, very complicated force in people. And I think policy is um, most people's politics are related to, but not, I think, built around a very, very deep analysis of, you know, whether or not they think a cut in the capital gains tax rate will eventually lead to enough innovation that the entire pie will grow bigger and so they will have a better job. It, it, it's just a very uh, messy space. You might say that in some ways, self-interest is not properly understood, to borrow from Tocqueville. I think that's um, right. So we've talked about these three theories, which I find fascinating, I think, the analysis is, is is very, very smart. And they sort of explain, as you have said, 2016, 2020, 2022. What does all of this analysis tell us about or what can it predict about 2024, if anything? I think one thing it predicts about 2024 is that the changes are likely to be on the margin, right? I mean, that's calcification. Uh, the thing that is mostly going to happen in 2024 is that people who voted for Democrats in 2020 are going to vote for them again. And people voted for Republicans in 2020 are going to do that again. Um, obviously, parity and just looking at the 2016 and 2020 elections will tell you that they will the election will nevertheless be close enough that, you know, if something happens, it changes minds of 2.5 percentage points of the population that could change everything. Um, and then cultural backlash, I think, is interesting because I think they're one of the core questions about elections is what are they about? What is an election about? And I think that Democrats have moved, compared to where they were in 2020, although they were somewhat here in 2020, much more back to the view that the best thing for them to do is to make the election about economics. Um, economics is where the other side is most divided, Republicans are most divided, and, and Democrats are most united. Now, in order to do that, they need the economy to be quite strong in 2024. To be, to be good, right? <laughs> yeah, right. so the inflation has been an issue for the, there for them. But but that is what they want. And the right seems, you know, Ron DeSantis is a very good example of a post-materialist right. Uh, what does Ron DeSantis think about healthcare, the economy, growth, et cetera? It's not very clear. He doesn't have very many signature policies in those areas. What does he think about uh, sexual identity, about you know religion, about immigration? Much clearer. Um, yeah. So DeSantis, uh, I think, shows the way Trump is in some ways right about this. Now, one place where I think DeSantis might actually be being overestimated and Trump a little bit underestimated is it one of Trump's 
advantages in 2016 specifically was that he was able to run as this businessman candidate. And and a lot of people who didn't know quite what to make of him did after seeing him on TV for years as like America's greatest boss. Think like this guy knows how the economy works. He knows how to build things, et cetera. Um, I don't think Donald Trump was a particularly good manager of the economy, but I think he was president during a, a fairly good period in the economy. And unlike some of the other Republicans, if part of the economy isn't great in 2024, Trump is going to be able to run saying, you know, it's good under me and you put me back in and it'll be like that again. And a lot of the other ones, I think, don't have a message or much credibility. I mean, you know, DeSantis is functionally a career politician. Right. But I thought who, we were post-material. Right. So so that's the question. How post-material <laughs> right. are we? How post-material yeah. is the Republican Party? And if the economy is in bad shape, right, if the economy becomes more salient, either because it is really good, in which case the Democrats are going to win, or because it's quite bad, in which case it's going to be a, a more central uh, space of, of debate and discussion, that might shift uh, who, who has a good case to make in that election. Do you think at this moment, notwithstanding his age, that Joe Biden is the safest bet for Democrats in 2024? I don't know. Um, I I have trouble with the question of Joe Biden's age, to be honest. Yeah. And I'm I'm I don't, you're not alone. I feel like people are a little too reticent to talk about this, but I like Joe Biden. I think he's done a, a quite good job in you know in his first term. I think there's a real just question about whether or not you should have somebody serving the presidency plausibly until they're 86. I also have not seen, we have not seen Joe Biden out on the trail a lot. He doesn't give a lot of interviews. There are, um, you know, he he does go stumping, right? There's no, I don't think Joe Biden is seen or, or there's any issue like that. But I do think that how Joe Biden will fare under the rigors of a campaign, yeah. you'd want to know that before the general election. It's one reason I'm, I'll be interested to see if Democrats have a primary, because I think there's on the one hand, a lot of pressure if Joe Biden is running again, not to primary an incumbent president. There's a kind of view in American politics that that is something that makes presidents lose. Whether or not that's kind of the right way to draw that causal arrow, I think is is an open question, but but that is a, is a view. It probably would be disastrous. On the other hand, primaries are information about how people run and where they are at that moment in time, which I think would be good to have about, about Biden. So I don't know. Um, if, if not for age, I think Biden is obviously the safest bet Democrats have. And I think it's just a little bit hard to know how the electorate, you know, will react to Biden's age, particularly if Biden is running not against Donald Trump, but as a as a young uh, against another Republican. I will say, if you think Trump will be the nominee of the Republican Party, then I think it's a pretty safe bet that Biden is the Democratic Party's safest play. Do you think if you have a view on this, and maybe this is an unfair question, that Joe Biden is maybe not vigorous enough to campaign? Do you think he's vigorous enough to govern? I do think he's vigorous enough to govern, but I think that, I mean, that's a, it's a complicated question because nobody governs alone. The problem yeah. with Donald Trump was not that he was not vigorous. It's that all of his vigor was like throwing things at the television. Um, <laughs> catch, so catch he wasn't really governing, right. but it wasn't, it wasn't an issue of vigor right. there. Uh, Biden, you know, from everything I can tell reporting on the White House, like Biden is there. He is constantly working. He's engaged in meetings. I do think that there are things that would be or would have been in some ways different, you know, if you're dealing with a Joe Biden of 25 years ago, having covered him, well, not 25 years ago, but having covered a younger Joe Biden too, I think there are ways in which his level of engagement with Congress might be different. I think that there are ways in which the sort of control isn't quite the, the word I'm looking for, but but I think his leadership of the party and his sort of, uh, the sort of boundary drawing would be, you know, 
would have been more active, engaged. You could argue that these differences are actually for the best, that Joe Biden would have gotten into more trouble than this Joe Biden has. I think that's actually right. entirely possible. But I don't know. The presidency is a it is a very, very tough, very, very demanding job. Um, I think he's doing a good job at it. But I also think like, you know, age comes on fast in your 80s. That has been my observation watching people. Um, yeah. And I think it's a I think it's a reasonable thing to be concerned about. And at the yeah. very least, it is going to be the central thing Biden will have to uh, comfort people, particularly in his own party on. Can we spend the final few minutes talking about you? I, you know, I, I love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting having another podcaster on, and I don't really talk about podcasting that much, even though some of our guests have their own podcasts. And so let me ask you, and, I, and I'm just curious, if we were sitting in a bar having a drink, I would be asking you these questions. Why do you like podcasting? Oh, I have a bunch of good reasons here. But, um, but I think the one that is the most fundamental for me is that podcasting seems like a space where uncertainty can live more fully and a kind of hesitance and a figuring out of things in real time that has been lost elsewhere. I mean, I come into journalism through blogging and, you know, I mean, when I'm an early blogger, I'm a college student, so nobody really cares what I think. And the blogosphere is also this very amateurish, you know, just people writing things and block quoting each other and writing about the block quotes of each other. And, you know, you could go on and be like, I don't know anything about the French uh, healthcare system. Can somebody tell me about it? And, and that whole sense of just, you know, people were out there talking and figuring things out was there. And now I don't think there's a lot of space for that. I mean, particularly maybe it also has to do, of course, with where I am in my own career, but you're not going to do that on Twitter unless you're really asking for trouble and you don't do that for a newspaper column. Right. right. And so- this space where you can talk about things um, and a lot of different ideas can live simultaneously and there's a lot of generosity in how people take these musings and these explorations, it just feels very healthy. And in many ways, podcasting feels like the healthiest of the various mediums I participate in or for some time have participated in. And then I just like hearing what people think. Uh, I... You know, when I'm writing on some level, I have to be the expert. Now I can muddy that by quoting other people who operate as the experts in my pieces. But but it is ultimately me there with my byline on the thing. When I'm interviewing somebody, it really is about what they think. Now, it's about what they think maybe in relationship to what I think or through engagement with me. But I can sit back. I mean, I'm going to be doing, uh, after this, a podcast with a, a neuroscientist in, uh, of time. And I don't have to pretend to be an expert on how time works. That's his job. <laughs> and I just so had that, a neuroscientist on. And it was, and it, yeah. You you can just uh, have margaritas throughout the interview. Exactly. Right? So so it's a real joy in that in that. Space it's not fully true. Able to indulge curiosity. Final question for you, also about you. What I had not known, and I, I'm I'm raising this because I knew you've talked about it, and I'm just curious how this has affected you. You know, to hear you talk, you're you're about as articulate a person as there is in media. Quite smart. You um you talk sometimes like an academic. You consume academic materials like people consume grape nuts for breakfast. But you have revealed that when you were in high school, not a great student, very low grade point average. Is something about that experience in your past, does that tell you something about how we're educating kids or does it give you any insights about our educational system or anything else? I don't know that it gives me so many insights about our educational system. I don't really think I'm somebody who has failed by schools. Um, mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time trying to puzzle out this part of my life. and. I think the the truest answer to it is that 
I have a little bit of a learning issue um, where mm-hmm. I can I have a lot of trouble sitting and listening to anybody just lecture. And that's still true today. Like I don't call into teleconference calls for this reason. I can have a conversation, no problem. I love conversations. I'm extremely focused as a reader, but just watching something doesn't work for me. Um, podcasts passive, actually passive work learning. for me yeah. because it can be the second thing I'm doing. Um, but I can't sit and listen to a podcast is the only thing I do, but I can fold laundry or take the dogs for a walk or whatever. So um, I, I think there are distinctive reasons. I had a lot of trouble in school, but at the time I didn't understand that. I thought everybody had the same trouble I did and everybody was zoned out all the time the way I was. And so I didn't know enough to realize that there, there was something that there was something I was struggling with. I will say, having been somebody who – it isn't just that I did poorly in school. I was, for much of that, functionally friendless or had you know only like one friend. I was very badly bullied when I was younger. Um, school was just tough for me the whole way through. I was you know very heavy for a long time. Like uh, up until really you know 17 or 18, the kind of – my own narrative of myself was functionally like failure after failure after failure after failure. And then I hit this other point in my life where it reverses. And I feel like the same person – but all of a sudden, I'm seeing a lot of success. I find a social world where I'm accepted and have wonderful friends and partners. Um, I uh, all of a sudden am seen as an incredibly hard worker. Uh, the same kind of dynamic where I couldn't really pay attention in school but could read endlessly. All of a sudden, shifts to my job is to read endlessly and then write about right. things I'm interested <laughs> in. And so I, it's very much informed my own politics that I, I am. Because I've watched myself fail and watched myself succeed and seen a lot of continuity between those sides of myself, um, what wasn't continuous was the context in which I operated. I think, one, I tend to be skeptical of how much blame people deserve for their own, or for that matter, credit, they deserve for their own life outcomes. A lot of it is about whether or not in the moment we are born into we are able to have or find a match between who we are and what society wants from us. And if we were not allowed that match or that was not there for us, uh, our, our lives would not go the way they do. And then the other piece is that to everything we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, I think it wouldn't take an overly uh, intense psychoanalysis to suggest that my obsession with an interested in an interest in context and frameworks, <laughs> comes from um, living a life where I feel like the deciding factors are context and frameworks. <laughs> and so I think there's probably a pretty straight line to draw from that side of my politics to that side of my journalism. Ezra Klein, I know you're busy. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a real delight. Thank you for having me. My conversation with Ezra Klein continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by highlighting a story that caught my eye, a story of resilience and community. On Sunday, a first-time author named Chelsea Banning posted on Twitter, quote, Only two people came to my author signing yesterday, so I was pretty bummed about it, especially as 37 people responded going to the event. Kind of upset, honestly, and a little embarrassed, end quote. Banning lives in Ohio, and she had just published her first book, a fantasy novel called Of Crowns and Legends. She isn't famous, at least not yet, 
So what happened next took her by surprise. Authors began replying, one by one, to share their own disappointing experiences at book signings. Soon, some of literature's biggest names chimed in. The great Margaret Atwood wrote, Join the club. I did a signing to which nobody came, except a guy who wanted to buy some scotch tape and thought I was the help. Min Jin Lee, who wrote Pachinko and joined me earlier this year on Stay Tuned, wrote, I did a book reading where only my husband's cousin showed up. One person. I'll never forget that reading. Another former Stay Tuned guest, Anand Giridardas, wrote, Two, please enlighten me on how you drew 100% more people than my event on Martha's Vineyard once. Scott Simon, of NPR's Weekend Edition, had some advice in the art of positive self-talk. He wrote, The weather was harsh, or there was a transit strike, or a road blockage, because of a tractor-trailer filled with tomatoes overturned. It is never the writer. Signing the books helps and cements goodwill. You will laugh about this someday soon. As of this taping, more than 50,000 people have liked or replied to Banning's post. And among that group are luminaries like Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, Rebecca Solnit, and Annette Gordon-Reed. For her part, Banning has been trying to respond to people individually, which I imagine is not so easy now that literally thousands of people have offered their support. But among all the legends who shared kind words, who did Banning reserve special thanks for? None other than Henry Winkler, a.k.a. the Fonz, and a friend of our show. After Winkler tweeted a link to Banning's new book, Banning screenshotted the tweet and wrote, I've been sitting here, jaw-dropped, just staring, O-M-G. That's O-M-G with five M's and five G's. To me, this whole episode is a good reminder that all of us, no matter how famous or successful, have moments of rejection and self-doubt, have felt embarrassed or ashamed. And it's also a reminder that there's nothing like the support of other people, some of whom we may not even know, to pick us back up. It also strikes me that there has been a lot of hand-wringing and concern about Twitter lately, and for good reason. Much of it is well-placed. But it's also worth noting that without Twitter, the vulnerable words of a first-time author and librarian in Ohio would not have caught the attention of some of the world's greatest living writers. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Banning herself wrote, I am overwhelmed by all the love and encouragement from these replies. I thought I'd just vent into the void, but heck y'all, you're wonderful. So as we head into the holidays, let's keep up the love and encouragement, the friendship, and the support. On Twitter, in person, everywhere. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ezra Klein. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, 
Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on home mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.